Welcome back to the Tapes Archive Podcast, where we release rare interviews that need to be heard. Today, we are releasing two interviews, one with Axl Rose and one with the man who interviewed him, Steve Harris. Steve grew up in San Francisco, but went to Japan as a college exchange student, and he loved it there. He felt like it was the place for him. After graduating in 1980, he started to work as a freelance translator in Tokyo. And through one of his college buddies, he got connected to a music magazine that needed an interpreter. This led to Harris conducting the interviews himself. Over the next 17 years, Steve would interview the biggest of names in the music world. Recently, we asked if we could publish some of those interviews here on the Tapes Archive, and he agreed. Over the next couple of months, we will be publishing some of his most notable interviews. Mark Allen, our usual interviewer, called Steve to talk about his life as an expat working for a Japanese music magazine. Although Steve Harris is not the famous Iron Maiden bassist, we feel like you will find this interview very interesting. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. The magazine that you were working for, what was it? Or or were you doing it for several magazines? Yeah, there was was one main one called Rockin' On Magazine, and it it ended up being the best-selling magazine in Japan. It had kind of a... started out sort of, you know, uh, in, the, in the 70s, it was kind of like a bunch of smarty pants who liked to sort of pontificate about Led Zeppelin or the Beatles. And, you know, they, they were talking about mainstream bands, but doing it in a very sort of quasi-intellectual style. And the magazine was sort of built on that ethos. And so what, what would happen is readers would start to submit stuff as well. And so you would get these sort of quirky pieces by readers that sort of looked at, these artists through their own unique Japanese lens and that flourished. And also the, the, the magazine had a really good knack for, for photography, had really good photographers. So it's, it's visuals were, were really stunning and I was their main interpreter. So that's why, um, you know, I had, I had so many gigs, but uh, I, I worked for quite a few other magazines as well. And that's really unusual, I think, because we don't expect Japanese magazines to either pontificate or, to really be super judgmental. Apparently, we're wrong when we think that. I grew up on Rolling Stone magazine. That's more of a culture of kind of like music geeks, just geeking out about the the authenticity of artists. There was kind of a a snobbery involved in in Rolling Stone and and that sort of culture. Hmm. I think that this Rockin' On magazine, it was even more quirky because you're talking about individuals bouncing their ideas off of Japanese culture and stuff. So kind of a journal, you know, kind of a literary journal combined with rock music. So let's talk about your interviews. What do you think were your best and your worst interviews? Wow, there was there were like a lot of man. You know, there were, there were almost no bad ones. I mean, that, that I could I could first of all state for the record that the worst interview ever was Miles Davis, and there there was nothing ever like this because he was just. I think this was about eighty. 84, 84, 85 or so, you know, two, three years before he died. And he was, you know, just, well, he, his temper was always very famous. You know, he, you know, he, he was very gruff. But, you know, he was really particularly nasty to me. He didn't like the questions that the interviewer was asking, and he blamed that on me. He said, you know, it's the fault of this white guy who's, who thinks he can speak Japanese. It was that kind of attitude. I wasn't ready to, to take any of his, of his, bull, of his bullshit either so at one point i just said look 
and I, I kind of told him off. I said, you know, uh, we're here to, to interview. We're being very respectful, and, 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 you're, and you're not. And he became very angry, angry about that and, and literally made me stay. He said, I'm going to have this guy come, and he's going to give you a dressing down, and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I kind of had to stay after school you know, with Miles Davis. It's just such a bitter memory, and I, I just hated that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but all you say is Miles Davis was the worst. And the best, I mean, gosh, there were just so many. It seems like the, the, the bigger the artist was, the easier they were to talk to. It was amazing because you would sit down with these people, and it was like almost they were craving conversation with somebody else. A person like David Bowie, for example, he was just so approachable and so open and and willing to talk about anything and, and entertain even the weirdest of, of questions or you know sting for example had great stuff to say mick jagger he was very thoughtful jimmy page and we probably have one of the definitive interviews because rocking on magazine was like you know led zeppelin's biggest advocate the editor-in-chief of the magazine was a, a total zeppelin freak so i think we had about an hour and a half with jimmy page and uh was there an interview that you wished you got had gotten but didn't Hmm. I mean, if you're sitting down with Jimmy Page for 90 minutes, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I good. Mean, but, you know, my own personal heroes were people like Todd Rundgren, who mm-hmm. I got to interview probably like four times. And I mean, you know, when I interviewed him, I mean, I just totally geeked out. So if you listen to my interviews with Todd, if you're you know, a Todd head. It's, but then again, he's done many, 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 many interviews like that because, you know, there are so many people who are just into him he's just like he's kind of a, a musical matrix that you plug into and so you know those of us who've graduated from the rundgren school of music we could just sit with him and talk for hours or you know somebody like like boss gags for example since i'm a you know bay area boy you know for me growing up boss was was a real musical hero and being able to interview, interview him was was quite an honor because and what a gentleman you know such thoughtful things to say and and you know just ready to field you know, any question possible. So, you know, two very different artists, Todd Rungan and Boss Skaggs, but, you know, both heroes of mine. That was great. Let me ask you about some of, uh, some names. I'll give you some names and tell me if you have any specific memories. Mm-hmm. So Axl Rose, let's mm-hmm. start with him. What what memory do you have of that? Oh, yeah, man. You talk about a great interview. So I I think there's two. The, the, the one that's, the great one is the telephone interview where I, you know, they were just kind of getting off the ground. They had been signed for a while, but, you know, um, the deal in Japan had, had just gone, gotten through. And there was kind of a buzz, like, you know, that they weren't being played on the radio or anything, but, you know, this, this, this band was going to hit big. And so, you know, I called him up on the phone and I, I, I didn't know him from, from, from Adam, you know, I did, you know, Axel Rose. I couldn't even spell his name, but, you know, so he was, you know, telling me all about, you know, how the band was coming together and how it was really tough to keep everybody on the same page. And, you know, many times thought, you know, this is just, this is just going to implode. It's not going to work. And one day it's like they, they were rehearsing and he just had to get away from all those guys because they were really being assholes. And, you know, he was walking away from the house and he, where they were practicing. And it, it, it struck him. He said, there's, there's no way we can lose. This thing is a winner. This thing is going to happen. I guess, you know, he knew it in his bones. He, he knew it intuitively that these guys had something. He, and he was very uh, uh, forthright, very candid. He comes across in your interview as much more human than I have ever heard him. Once he went on the road, I, I, I think just the, the wear and tear of the road really took its toll on him. Because when they came to Japan for that first tour, I think it was 87, you know, I was maybe the fourth row. And 
he was getting progressively irritated. He seemed to be like having problems with other guys in the band. And about 45 minutes into the, into the show, they just quit. They got up and left. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I thought the Japanese audience would be very sort of Japanese submissive and say, oh, oh well, go home. But man, they were pissed off. These folks were there to, to hear some, some heavy metal. And, and when these guys left, it's like, what the fuck? You know, you guys can't just leave us like this. So it was probably the most ugly scene I've ever seen in a concert in my entire life. But that was not the Axl Rose I, I talked to on the phone. This was clearly a different Axl Rose. And it was maybe, I don't know, a year after I talked to him. Okay. How about David Lee Roth? Yeah, well, you know, man, talk about Van Halen the band was sort of a hero. Obviously, Eddie Van Halen, of course, but it's just that sound. And when David Lee Roth left, I mean, forget it. It was no longer Van Halen. I mean, maybe I can listen to one or two of the songs with Sammy Hagar, but for me, that the band had to be those four guys and, and nobody else. So one of my best interviews is actually Eddie just totally shooting from the hip. And he really, he holds back nothing. And then I talked to David Roth, I think once in person and once on the phone. In person, he was quite charming because it was still, I think, early in his solo career. When I talked to him over the phone, I think we're talking about maybe 1994. I don't know. It was kind of like people could see the man behind the curtain and mm, maybe he's not quite what we thought he was. And he, he was actually openly, uh, I would say, just sort of aggressively obnoxious in that interview. You know, he did, he did everything but tell me to fuck off. And, you know, I was trying to be as nice as I could. I just had to ask some probing questions that I think clearly hit a nerve. But, yeah, that telephone interview is like really, I think, makes for probably painful listening. Okay. Uh, how about Steve Vai? Steve Vai is, is like, every, I, he was exactly like how I've seen him before. He's, he's very like, sounds like a businessman. You know, he's very sort of like, I don't know, he enunciates very clearly and just seems like a guy who clips his, his toenails every night, <laughs> like a perf- you know, a perfectionist, you know, he's, you know, he probably, you know, rearranges his ties and, and stuff as, as a hobby. I don't know. He just seems like a guy who really, really keeps his ducks in a row 24 seven. And that's the way he speaks. Uh, Joey Ramone. Yeah. Joey Ramone. He's like, I always thought the Ramones were real knuckleheads and, and he came across as a knucklehead. I mean, he just, <laughs> I, th- I think he was really full of himself, and, and the Ramones were have been were led to believe they were all that. A couple of times he started to sort of um, lecture, like you know about how some stuff sucked and how like they were aw- they were awesome and authentic and this sucked and but the Ramones are awesome and they're authentic, but this sucks and but the Ramones are really authentic, you know. And it's, <laughs> it, you know, I think he kind of bought it. He he drank the Kool Aid. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're a Ramones fan, but I, I always kind of thought that they were. I don't know, three chords and an attitude and, and not a hell of a lot else. I, you know, with all due respect to people that like them, but he, that's the way he came across. He, he was kind of like, you know, intoxicated on the band's reputation, you know, especially among hipsters who thought these guys were like the godfathers of punk or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed all of them together and they were very goofy, but they were smarter than I expected them to be. I don't know. Really? But yeah. So maybe maybe I had low expectations. I don't know, but uh, whatever it was, I don't have a ton of memories of of the conversation, but I sort of enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And uh, last one, Pete Townsend. Yeah, like I said, the big the bigger they they are, the more depth they have. And Pete was he scrutinized the questions and and he gave full answers, unambiguous. He's like the exact opposite of. Joey Ramone. He's got the chops, he's got the catalog, 
and he has the intellect and the character, the depth of character that supports all that. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, you know, I interviewed him once and it was in a a group interview and he, you could tell he was thinking things through very strongly and almost came full circle in in our conversation you know it was the the, the he was psychoderelict had just come out and but he was also talking about tommy the musical on broadway and you could tell he was like processing everything that was going on and it uh great brain in that head yeah isn't that the beauty of the of, of interviews though because we as listeners have only the music to go on but then when we when we actually do these interviews and, and talk to people i think that you know their depth as human beings and as artists really come across yeah. you know and uh, they have to have incredible inner resources ingenuity and and just genius to come up with the stuff they do mm-hmm. they just have to because you know otherwise they wouldn't be that damn good it's not because necessarily they they sell a bazillion records. It's their stuff is just it's it's just so imaginative and so original. And so when you actually do meet the man or the woman behind the music, you know you, it, they do tend to be very very stunning human beings just in their own right. Yeah, especially if you get them on a good day. Although, you know, Townsend, I I don't I, I think he's thinking all the time. I I can't, I can't think of anybody like you know who's like like a, a major artist with like who's who has major milestones in their you know in their past who I've talked to who turned out to be a disappointment who turned out to be somebody really very shallow or somebody just you know kind of you know faking their way through it or dialing it in they all had you know tons of stuff to say about their art about the era that you know that they lived in etc cetera, etc cetera. the interview just it really kind of drops the curtain drops the filter and you can see the genius behind the music and that's that's the beauty of the interviews and that's maybe that's one reason why you know i, I kept all those those recordings of the interviews because i knew you know someday somebody's gonna want to hear this shit you know it's just they, they, they gotta hear this stuff because you know hearing these guys unedited you, you you really get some gems from what they say i was interviewing robert fripp several times and he asked me you know what are you gonna do with the the, the guy who was doing the interview was was being recorded and i was making my own recording why are you doing it? I said, because I, I keep a collection. He said, oh. He said, someday that's going to be very valuable. I said, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I think it'll be valuable because, you know, people are going to want to hear it. They don't want to just go back and read the edited uh, version of the interview. They wanna, they'll probably want to hear what was actually said and the context and the tone of voice. Which gets to a couple of other questions I have for you, which is, why are you allowing us to share your interviews for free? Precisely for that reason, because I, 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 I think they're of value. I, I think, you know, people can get a lot from them. And I, and I think they are, they should just be, you know, in the public comments. You know, they should just be available for anybody. Um, right? I've been, I was contacted a couple weeks ago by an organization that's making a, a documentary about George Michael and Wham. And, uh, you know, I have my interview with, with uh, George Michael and Andrew was, you know, from the very earliest days, like 1983, you know, right after they broke big in the U.K., and it's a pretty darn good interview, I say, I say so myself. And they wanted to pay me you know, per second. And I said, I, I have no idea you know, what, what to charge. I don't charge anybody. And they said, well, it's like, you know, the 35 bucks a second it would be the going rate. I said, okay, that sounds cool. But that, that's really the first time that, that anybody's actually talked about money, and they might not even use it. But I, I think that just, you know, as a person who experienced 
you know, the, the sort of shared musical legacy that we have. You know, it's just my responsibility to, to, to open it up. It should, it should be enjoyed. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, just a few more questions. So yeah, let me nice. see. He says, uh, in many of the interviews, you seem almost embarrassed by the questions that are being asked. Is that, <laughs> yeah, is that some, accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So what's the well, story behind that? Well, if I'm interpreting for somebody, it's their questions. Right. And I developed a, a good enough rapport with the Rocky Art people that if we would go over the questions in advance, and I would, I would, I would tell them whether I thought this was an eye eye roller or not, you know. <laughs> and um, because sometimes they would ask stuff that would just, I don't know, it was just, it was just like, don't don't go down the alley. It's just, it's just silly. I remember we there was a guy that huge fan of Roxy music, Brian Ferry interview, and you know it, this was just right after um, on the heels of Avalon, the Avalon tour. He was asking a question like, when you talk about more than this. What is the this? <laughs> it's like uh, you know, that, you know. I didn't tell the guy that sounds just stupid, but I just told him you're probably going to want to be a little more specific. You know, you know, <laughs> more than this. What is the this? It's like, well, uh, I guess this would be you know my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. I, I don't know what, what can I tell him. You know, <laughs> I, I think that he, he was so enraptured by Roxy music and, and Brian Ferry that. He got a little carried away with his his emotions there. Yeah, I, I could see that. Although I don't think I'd ask that question. But <laughs> no, but there, there were times in interviews when yeah, um, people would ask questions that I didn't have a chance to to filter in advance, and uh, sometimes I had to tell the interviewee, okay, here's what he's saying, here's what he probably means, and what do you think? So I would try to sort of unpack a little bit make it a little less awkward but certainly awkward moments were were, were, were part of that scene no yeah. doubt about it um he says that your beck interview has the title beck hansen 1994 by far the worst interview ever why is that he was so subdued and so guarded and also i i think that my own personal animosity towards him kind of crept in as well because oh. I, I i saw him perform and I thought at the time he was kind of being hailed as this, you know, kind of up and coming smarty pants, college boy, sort of um, slacker nihilist. genius. Yes, exactly. Slacker genius. Exactly. He just tries to be so goddamn, you know, ironic about everything. And it's just that at the time that was kind of the hip thing to do. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, Gen X thing to, thing to do. But, you know, being a boomer, I guess, a 30-something boomer at the time, I thought it was just really lame because at some point I just kind of wanted him to, to drop the facade and show us what's under the hood. And he just never seemed to, to get past his, his, these little vanities he had. And I, I think, you know, when, when, I, when we interviewed him, I, I, I felt that his lack of self-reflection, lack of honesty came through. He seemed to be too guarded. And other people who have listened to the interview have not had that same response that I had. They said, well, you know, it doesn't sound that bad to me. And the magazine was, was not unhappy with it by any means. But I, I really thought that it was not a satisfying, meaty conversation. It was just like a show. There was just, you know, too much prancing about and not really getting to the, 
the heart of things. Interesting. I I remember having a pretty good conversation with him, but it was largely because I hadn't heard a lot of the the acoustic and you know early stuff like One Foot in the Grave and all the other things that he was doing that were less produced. And so I got a, a bit of an education during at that point, you know, in the conversation. And th- that stuff to me is much more interesting than most of the commercial stuff that he's done. But anyway, uh, funny how you can have well, like, different uh, reactions to a person. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, my, my own, even though I'm, I'm just supposed to be the interviewer, I think maybe sometimes I can insert a little too much of myself into the interview. And I think in, in his case, maybe that came across. But, you know, in, in, in subsequent years, I mean, you know, he worked with, he's worked with people like Jason Faulkner, who to, to me, you know, walks on water. You know, he's just a guy that I've just, you know, worshipped for years. He, you know, he's gone nowhere. He's still, you know, the, the, the greatest artist that was needed, still has yet to be discovered. And, you know, Jason's been playing in his backup band. And, you know, Roger Manning from Jellyfish, too. Um so, you know, he certainly works with guys that I respect a lot. So maybe there is more to his art. I, I, you know, I, I didn't really bother to follow up after that yeah. uh, tour and, and stuff. So in uh, so you ended uh, interviewing in 97. Why was that? And what are you what are you doing since? I changed careers. I uh, had three kids already. You know, my, my first son was born in 86 and then another one in 89. And, last one 94 so i was a father of three kids and i was a freelancer and all three kids were going to an expensive private school here in tokyo for for english speakers and um i got to know a teacher there and and i i, I started teaching japanese that my kids tuition would be free and plus one thing about the interview circuit there you know i mean i started when i was like 21 years old and in 19 19- by the mid nineties, you know, I'm, you know, getting to my mid to late thirties. And so what, what was happening was that we, I would go into a room to interview an artist and I'd be the oldest guy in the room. <laughs> I'd be older than the artist. I'd be older than the interviewer. I'd be older than the record company guys. I'd be older than the manager. And I, something <laughs> about that just didn't sit right with me. I just felt like, okay, I'm getting a little old for this stuff. You know, I've got these, you know, and so the transitioning to the teaching life for me meant, just okay i'm gonna just get out of music altogether and, and just commit, commit myself to teaching that's why i stopped in 1997 the last interview i did was was brian eno uh, which i think i think the great. tape didn't survive uh-huh. that was that was a really interesting interview because he, <laughs> he told you know he he had been living in, in spending half the year in, in st petersburg in russia and you ask yourself, you know, when you, why is Brian, you know, spending half the year in, in, in St. Petersburg, Russia? And he said, and he, he told me without a trace of iron, he said, the women. And I'm thinking, um, what? He said, the women, man. He says, and this is not something you expect here from Brian, you know, he says, like, okay, these Russian women, he says, they're, they're so hot. And like, you know, when the weather changes, the fur comes off and they are just spectacular. And he was like, totally serious. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and that, the, the tape didn't survive. And I don't know what happened to the tape. Maybe it's because I was, I was, you know, thinking about the change of careers and just I don't know. But it's it's a, it's a pity because that that moment will always stay with me. Brian, you know, telling me about Russian women and how the fur comes off, and Saint Petersburg is just the place to I guess have a hard on for six months of the year. 
yeah, yeah, true story. That's great. True story. That, that, that was the, that was my grand finale there. Yeah. Brian Eno, nineteen ninety-seven. If you could listen to the music he was making, it was just he had, he created the software that generated music by itself. And you know, when you listen to it, that's exactly what it sounded like. It's like, you know, it's like. Have you ever heard his music for airports? I, I know the album. It's, it's I, I have of, not heard it. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of piddling and plinking on, like you know, the piano. It's like it's totally. It's it's not only is it Muzak, but it's like horrible Muzak. But anyway, he had created the software that, that's self-generated music, and that's what it sounded like. And like, you know, so this is you know, this sort of you know, mad musical mad scientist. And here he is telling me at the interview that he spends half the year in Russia because he likes you know women and the big tits and stuff. It's just you know, the whole thing just didn't wait. it doesn't quite add up. Yeah. You know? So are you about sixty or so? Sixty-two, maybe? Yeah, I'm sixty-two. Yeah, 62. yeah. Okay. I was born in nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we're the same age. And um, oh, is that right? Yeah. And uh, was I, I was just going to ask you one other thing. And this I remember the guys in Cheap Trick, because uh, obviously Cheap Trick mm-hmm. was insanely big there, said that when they would go to Japanese magazines before they did the interview, they would fill out some sort of questionnaire with like a hundred questions on it. And apparently all the bands would do this. What's your favorite color? I don't know. Crap like that. And, and then, uh, and you know, when they, when they collected enough answers, they, you know, then they would write a story based on all the, the collected information. Did you see that? Is that accurate? No, I, I have I have no recollection of that. Okay. Um, the cheap trick, big in Japan thing, has kind of been like um, it's been exaggerated. Okay? okay. So I mean, if if cheap trick had been as big in Japan as rock fans seem to think, you know, it's like everybody from our generation would know about them, right? Because live at the Budokan Budokan, was, yeah. was was seventy eight, which was when you and I were twenty years old, right. and you know all those screaming, you know, uh, teeny boppers. We're probably, you know, mid-teens to late-teens, maybe. So people our age, you would think, would know about Cheap Trick, like, say, people from our generation know about the Beatles, right? And that's not the case at all. I mean, they were, they had a very strong but limited following here in Japan. And the main teeny bopper magazine, it was called Music Life, played them up. And also that the magazine I did work for, Rocking On, also took them seriously because, you know, Cheap Trick was both a a visually appealing band, but also a, you know a, an appealing band in terms of their pop music sound, and then for the sort of the music heads appealing because they just were astute. Their catalog is is very very rich, so you can you know approach the the cheap trick phenomenon from just about any angle, and and you know you always come up with success. But cheap trick were never as big in Japan as people seem to think. It's just that live at Budokan was such a a hit and it was you know the album that broke them that people think oh cheap trick was like you know everybody's favorite band in japan and that is definitely not the case at all yeah no that i think that album got so overplayed here and that mm. kind of left everybody with the impression that they were huge in japan but i just yeah, remember exactly. them telling I, I remember rick nielsen telling me that story and i thought well, that's really kind of smart. And so when I would do my interviews, I figure, well, uh, I'll just, I'll keep a running question going. And, you know, it made for a bunch of good stories, you know, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I didn't know if that was real, if they did that. So, 
But you they, didn't they, see. They probably did. They, they probably did something like that. I mean, I'm sure Music Life magazine probably had all kinds of quirky little projects that they had Cheap Trick do. And those guys were such road dogs. And, and, and so, you know, they, they continue to be hungry for fame to this day that they'll do anything. You know? <laughs> um, um, it's it's weird because, you know, it's, yeah, Rick, Rick Nielsen will do literally anything you, you tell him to because he just, he just thinks he, he needs to do it. He needs to keep the band somehow alive. But the thing is, they're, you know, for me, they, their music alone is, is just timeless. It's just wonderful. First three albums, anyway. But by the way, when, when did you first get into music yourself, Mark? Well, when I when I was a kid, I mean, I, I grew up in New York, and I went to concerts, I mean, all the time, and just loved music, especially live music. And uh, I got to, um, you know, I was a newspaper reporter, and I came to Indianapolis in 1988, and in 1989, well, 1990, the person who was the rock critic at the paper did something not very smart. She sent a note about the boss to the boss by accident, and um, and so the boss called me and said, would you like to be the rock critic? So I was 31 at the time. And I had the same reaction at the end that you did, which is I'm too old for this. You know, I was I, I was at a Rage Against the Machine concert, and there you go. and these these basically where I sat was um, behind the soundboard, and it, they had a lot of nice legroom there, and it was very comfortable. Plus, I didn't have to stand up all night at these shows, so that was great. And then, but so at this Rage Against the Machine show, these kids come rushing down and they all like stand in front of me in that area. And I'm like, guys, I can't see. And the, and and the, this kid turned around to me and he said, out of the way, old man. And I said, oh, man, I'm 39. <laughs> I'm not old. Oh, yeah. And uh, right. and then the Rage of uh-huh. Against Machine sound guy saved me. He came up to me and he said, come down here in the sound booth. You'll be safer here. And so I watched the show <laughs> from the sound booth. And I, I went back the next day and I'm like, I'm done. This is it. I can't do it uh-huh. anymore. So, anyway. And it's, you know, well, the thing is, you know, the rock dream for me begins about 1968 uh-huh. and you know and i'm 10 years old so it's like it's just part of part of our lives right i mean you know, yeah that's all we we did so you know we all talked about we've talked about music when we talked about girls you know so like it was you know album, album coming out was like an event doing it through my 20s was yeah definitely a dream come true getting into the 30s there you know it's like it's starting to dawn on me that hold on the people are, are still you know staying young i'm the only one getting old and um yeah it's interesting how age really did start to matter and also maybe the music too the music started to change a little bit as well because i would say that probably i don't know about you but i stopped being an active listener probably around the year 2000 or so yes that was about when it's like okay it's like I, you know i i can't listen to radio because there's really almost nothing that is palatable. Yeah. So I think, you know, you know, from our, from our, from our perspective, that dream was probably about a 30 year journey, maybe 35 year journey. Yeah. I would say maybe you know, 65 to 
64 to about 2000, I would say. The, the people you know, who, but, who don't age out of it, it, it's amazing to me, you know, like the like John Perellis. I mean, he wrote for, for, you know, well into his 60s, I think. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Chris DeGau did, and there were a bunch of them that did, but I... I uh, I, I I aged out for whatever reason, so and uh, yeah, I guess yeah, you did yeah. too. So just a couple of little cartridges here going off about you know kids <laughs> these days. In my day, <laughs> yeah, we would have never listened to that. No. Anyway, yeah. well, it was great to talk to you, and I can't wait to hear some some more of these interviews. And uh, and you know, I really appreciate you being part of. Uh, our little website uh, and uh, podcast because uh, it's going to add so much. I mean, I've got some good interviews, but man, you got the, the cream of the crop people. Whenever you guys need something, just uh, let me know. All right. Take care, man. Good to talk to you. All right. You, you, same here. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.